brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, people, another day, another deep dive into this weird world from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and we are no strangers to the subject of the ruling elite's secret agendas, whether it be their not-as-advertised esoteric and occult practices, their allegiances to secret societies and think tanks you don't hear about in the news, or their empire-expanding, ever-present pursuit of complete globalization. Yes, it seems that at nearly every time depth, there's what the history books say, and then there's the subtext and side stories that end up on the cutting room floor as to not expose the masses to the very subjects they work so hard to quarantine. The lost history of advanced civilizations, more developed and accurate models for understanding reality and man's place in it, advanced technology, ether physics, exotic energy sources, alchemical sciences, entheogens, and the kitchen sink of secrets we learn a little more about each day. These themes seem to be the undercurrent of so much activity throughout the human story no matter where you look, so why wouldn't it be present in the life and times of Napoleon Bonaparte as well, one of the most successful military men in history? Well, that's the premise of Walter Bosley's latest book, The Esoteric Napoleon, a fourth book in his Secret Mission series, and a title that seems to be kicking off a multi-volume miniseries of its own. You might remember Walter from several previous shows covering his books Latitude 33, Keys to the Kingdom, which explores arcane science and engineering in the making and location of Disneyland, and his Empire of the Wheel series, which covers the Sonora Aero Club, secret flying crafts, the drawings of Charles Delshaw, Tesla Tech, a secret group of Prussian nationalists known as Nimza, and so much more. He also has an interesting history, serving as a counterintelligence specialist during the final years of the Cold War, a special agent with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and as a personal security and counterterrorism consultant for various clients around the world. It's going to be a wild ride that I am very excited to take. The deep state decoder and esoteric agenda exposer, Walter Bosley, welcome back to the higher side. Hey, it's great to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. You've written about some pretty amazing material over the years, and you're really good at finding new places to look. 
When I saw The Esoteric Napoleon, I knew it was going to be a great read. I was not very knowledgeable about Napoleon in general, honestly. I'd, of course, heard the provocative rumor about him spending the night in the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid and coming out all flustered, something we'll definitely get into. But to get the mental wheels turning out there, tell us a bit about how Napoleon became the subject of a new book in the Secret Mission series and this kind of thematic thread that weaves between these books. Well, it does have an interesting background for some years now, dating back to 2014, as I recall it. Joseph Farrell and I have discussed our personal curiosities about the Louisiana Purchase. And of course, many may not know that Napoleon Bonaparte was the one that sold the Louisiana Territory to the United States. He's the one who made the deal with Thomas Jefferson, which Congress wasn't too thrilled about at the time. They felt that he exceeded his powers, but when they saw that it doubled the size of the then United States, they, you know, kind of went along with it. So with our curiosities about the whys and wherefores of the sale, I mean, there is the known history of the political in the more expedient reasons why Napoleon sold it. But, you know, we always wondered what did the French find there? Did they find something before the sale? You know, what just there's all sorts of interesting things, not the least of which is the very curious death of Meriwether Lewis, who was very likely murdered. You know, and he was of the Lewis and Clark expedition, of course, that went and explored the Louisiana Territory right after the purchase. So with all these interesting mysteries, Napoleon was kind of on my plate of curiosities. And early last year, I think it was February of 2018, I went to visit Joseph with another friend, and we went to his favorite used book emporium. This huge, it was even bigger before, but they've downsized a big book emporium where he lives. And I happened to find an edition of a book that I'd heard of, but I'd never seen, titled Bonaparte in Egypt by Christopher Harold. And there was only one copy, so I scooped that up. And I just got it as extra reading curiosity, because what I was actually intending to work on last year was the follow-up to Secret Missions 1 about Juan Cabrillo. And I had also found a book about California history on the same day and purchased that as well. And actually read that one first before I picked up the uh, Bonaparte in Egypt book. Well, as I read Bonaparte in Egypt, I realized how much I did not know previously about Napoleon Bonaparte. All I knew was what we're all taught in school, in movies and TV and popular culture, that he was this glum, fat, bald megalomaniac. And that's really all there was to him. And, of course, in some extreme cases, the Antichrist of the 19th century and all this. Well, as I read the Herald book, as I said, I learned things about Napoleon that I did not know. When he went to Egypt, he wasn't yet 30 years old. And I'm reading that he's a long-haired, slim, great-looking guy. The women adored him. Men just idolize him. I'm getting this complete different picture of Napoleon. But also, in this one book, I'm learning about his fascination, his primary love for science and ancient history and, and you know, those kind of world explorer-type mysteries that are popular today. And again, this I didn't know about Napoleon. So as I'm reading this book, I'm realizing, 
wait a minute, there's a big story here, and oh my gosh, this looks like secret mission series material here. And sure enough, the more I read, the more I became convinced that Napoleon Bonaparte definitely deserved to get what I call the secret missions treatment from my series of books. So I decided after finishing the Herald book, I got my hands on another biography. And before I was done with that biography, I decided, my gosh, I need to really dig into this man's story because, as you said, that curious tale about the night he spent in the pyramid was one of those things Farrell and I would talk about and, you know, I had wondered about over the years. And it was looking like that that was something that at least he actually did spend time in the pyramid. And I realized, okay, I've got to dig into this. And it ended up being just reading over almost 6,000 pages of biographical material on Napoleon, just the bio material alone. And I'll tell you, by halfway through it, I had become, call me a Bonapartist. <laughs> I, I am a fan of Napoleon Bonaparte. He is, I considered to be one of the most slandered and lied about historical figures in known history. And that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I wanted to get into that perception of the man a little bit more because I did have it written down right here that you referred to him as one of the most slandered men in history. And like you had mentioned, the conventional view I think most people have is to consider him an aggressive egomaniac or tyrannical conqueror, hell-bent on expanding the empire. But you consider him a philosopher and an esoteric scientist at heart. Mm -hmm. What would you tell people to expand on that and maybe countering the conventional view of him and making the case that he was more than meets the eye? Well, first of all, that image, that erroneous image that we have all been fed, that is a direct product of 19th century British propaganda and lies. And when I say from now on in this conversation, from here out in this conversation, and when you read it in the book, when I refer to the Brits or the British, I am referring to the aristocracy. I'm referring to their government at the time. The British people actually kind of admired Napoleon, just like the peoples of the countries that he invaded, you know, and defeated their armies. He would go and he would do these civic improvements. And the peoples of these countries, the actual people themselves, would end up liking the guy or loving him. But it was the aristocracy. And between the British aristocracy and the House of Este, which was the major overarching dynasty that had their members in pretty much all the thrones of Europe, they were the ones, they in England were the ones, and primarily the British when it comes to the worst slander of it all, they're the ones responsible for this image of the megalomaniac. And it was all because at the time that Napoleon emerged, the British Empire was still rising, and they had just been embarrassed in front of the whole world by the American Revolution. And they weren't about now to let this French upstart, as they saw him, come in and steal their thunder and prevent their vision, their determination for their empire. And that's really what the British were all about. I had never looked at the, the British aristocracy and their government as being as shameful, shameless, I should say, 
in how they handled the whole Napoleonic issue as they did during the 19th century. It's it's obvious when you look closely. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not surprised that the British Empire would be capable of pumping out some pretty potent propaganda about somebody. Right. And as you mentioned, that when he conquered a place, he kind of laid out his vision and it would make things better for the people as opposed to the elites, almost like a general Robin Hood. And this is not the perception I had. I mean, we use these terms like invader or conqueror, but apparently he only started one of the nine Napoleonic Wars anyway. So, I mean, how can we say invader if most of them are started from the other side? Is that right? Oh, yeah, that, that's it's crazy. They called this the Napoleonic Wars, this era. There were nine of them, and he only started one, and that was with Spain, and that was over a legitimate violation by the Spanish of a treaty that they had signed with him, with France. And the other eight wars were started by England and the uh, House of Este and their allies in Europe. It really should have been called the wars of British and European dynastic aggression is what it should have been called, because mm. that's what they were. And they got to the point where they openly were just stating that they were declaring war on the man himself, on Napoleon Bonaparte himself. So we see the beginnings of the philosophical collectivist assault on the idea of a strongman leader, okay? We see that the beginnings of we must always demonize the strong charismatic leader because a strong charismatic leader can do great evil and destructive things. But the flip side of that coin is a strong charismatic leader doing good things on the side of good can't be beat by any dynasty or collectivist body. And so with Napoleon, in the Napoleonic era, we see the beginnings of the philosophical collectivists kind of uh, sharpening their teeth on, you know, how to tear down a great leader. And it just, it, it's, it's kind of astonishing to some degree. I mean, they would tell stories to their children, you know, that Napoleon Bonaparte will take you away and boil you up in a kettle and eat you and and that kind of I just the most ridiculous they just wanted to turn him into a, a boogeyman really yes that is a good breakdown and blaming the opposition is a common tactic for empires especially the british one but to play devil's advocate a little bit here i wonder if we are romanticizing him a little bit because there are probably lots of conquerors in history who think they made improvements to the places they invaded. And I know you're a military guy more than myself. And a lot of these characters in history are also more complex than we give them credit for. But I've heard some critics give pretty insane numbers for the deaths in Napoleon's wake. And we're not just talking about soldiers. Some people have even used the word exterminate when it comes to how Napoleon felt about different cultures he encountered especially non-European ones. And I'm no, I know nothing, you know, I was just trying to prepare for this interview. And I guess I'd ask, do you consider that stuff part of the propaganda or is yes. the truth somewhere in the middle? Well, it, it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of both in a way. What you've got is a bunch of propaganda exaggerating what did happen. What you have are a couple of instances. Now we have to remember when I say, Hey, I'm a fan of Napoleon Bonaparte. By no means was the man perfect. He did make mistakes like any other human leader we've ever had, even the best of them. And he would admit 
when he realized, oh my gosh, you know, that was the wrong thing. And he would try to fix that and make reparations. So the truth is that, you know, yeah, there were some things you can point to. Absolutely. But when you read the biographical material, it's nowhere near like the propaganda plays it out to be. When you look at the circumstances and the details, you find out that it wasn't as much as is exaggerated. You find out that a lot of it he was not personally responsible for and he did not approve of what was done in certain cases. So it's kind of like you say, the truth is somewhere between the adoring fans and his greatest critics. (laughs) Yes, as is often the case. And that was a pretty good response. It's just something I wanted to at least address pretty early on here. I respect that you're a fan. I really have no dog in the fight on a lot of the people we talk about. And if they were a good or bad person at heart, just like John D. or Sir Francis Bacon, or even when we talk about aspects of the top brass of the Nazi organization, usually I'm looking past the morality stuff anyway. I don't think highly of a lot of people in positions of power, but I'm more interested at this point in just using these figures as a gateway to understanding and opening up more of that secret history and esoteric knowledge that you tend to do such a great job digging up. Here's a way to look at or to describe Napoleon. He was imperfect. There were some missteps. He was by no means an Adolf Hitler, nor was he an Antichrist. And that's really a way you can put it. Fair, fair. And uh, to get more into the esoteric side of things, just as we've speculated with previous guests about treasures and artifacts in the Baghdad Museum being more of a priority to the invasion of Iraq than was advertised, Mm -hmm. you suggest that secret codes, mysteries, and treasures might have fueled Napoleon's conquest, particularly places in Italy to start. What might those have been? What could he have been seeking? I think in general, he was seeking any information that he could get on how I like to phrase it, the lost technology of the forgotten civilization. Call it Atlantis, call it the Rama Empire, call it whatever you want. But whatever that lost age or golden age, some call it, of human history is that left traces behind in, for instance, the megalithic structures or the out-of-place artifacts that are, you know, these these more technologically advanced objects that shouldn't exist in the era where they were found. The clues are all over the world. I think these mysteries fascinated him. And the biographers say that his first love, intellectual love, was science and history. He was much more interested in that than politics. All the politics seemed to be just an expedient measure, you know, part of what he was thrust into. And and don't mistake what I'm saying. He excelled at that. It's not that he didn't like that once he got into it, but he excelled at it. He was a civics genius. Napoleonic law still is the foundation for French law to this day. The way cities are laid out, all sorts of interesting things, even our own street address system here in the United States and other places in the world where it's even numbers on one side of the street, not on the other. That's Napoleon. Hmm. That was Napoleon designs that came up with that. So he left a lasting impression 
And you could say to some degree, he's one of those few who helped create our modern world up there with Tesla, you know, in the civics way. So here was a guy who was interested in science and ancient history primarily more than anything else. And he was a math whiz. This is why he they say why he went into artillery, because math is important in artillery. And he was an artillery genius. He is still studied in war colleges all over. So this was a great passion for him. And one of the things he started doing early when he, you know, was part of the military machine of France was he would target places that, yeah, had interest to him in this regard. Mm -hmm. So one of the things he was keenly interested in was getting his hands on any documents that had been in possession of the Vatican. Yes. He thought maybe he could glean something from on, you know, this ancient secret, this ancient world that was lost. But he was also, I think, very interested in his own personal history. I think he suspected early on that he might have been of a very important uh, dynastic line. Mm -hmm. And this was also part of why he was looking at some of these sites and pursuing some of the places and things that he pursued. Yes, well said. And definitely there is this element of a Da Vinci Code type of encoding of arts that relates to nobility and bloodlines and secret lovers and all that kind of stuff. That's definitely a big part of part two of this book. And you also note that when he took over a place, he did demand a list of any art uncovered, paintings and sculptures. That kind of helps to make the case that that was of heightened interest. And you mentioned things from the Vatican. I thought it was really interesting when he finally forged a peace treaty with Venice. He demanded several Navy ships, 15 million francs, 20 paintings, and 500 Vatican manuscripts. And it's like, man, that sounds like the real prize. Of course, you got to throw in some ships and some cash right. just to hide the fact that you really want these manuscripts. Or to keep your employer happy, right? You know, you're <laughs> yes. doing this for your country, and the government back home expects you to get resources. So the money and the ships legitimately cover that need. but. Yeah, the stuff regarding the manuscripts and the art, that was his own. Now, even the art he would forward to France, that was to go for the National Museum for France's cultural tastes and interests and all this stuff. But you're right. The documents, that was primarily in all him. And what's interesting is there's that little episode where they gave him 300 manuscripts, okay? And he contacted them back and informed them, no, no, no. The agreement was 500. I expect the remaining 200. <laughs> and, you know, he, he got them. And what's interesting is what he was looking for in them, that can only be guessed at. Now, I'll be going into the details and the uh, pursuing the unanswered questions from this book regarding the art and the manuscripts in the second volume of this particular chapter of the Secret Missions figures. But when you look at it even from the outside, it's obvious, okay, he was looking for something arcane, clearly. And the challenge will be, of course, you know, in the in the next volume is for me to dig into those details. Mm. Yes, and Vatican archives are definitely provocative to me. And mm -hmm. speaking of employers, as you mentioned, I'm also always interested in secret allegiances and hidden financial backers. 
And you mentioned this too. To quote the book, there remains in the material about Napoleon a hint of suggestion that he represented an interest that represented him from off stage, where it so often counts. Was an unseen backer a factor in Napoleon's victory over Italy? And I would ask the same question. I think we've all seen the paintings of Napoleon with his hand in his shirt, what people suspect is a hidden hand, Freemasonic hand mm -hmm. gesture of some type. Uh, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on this secret backer question? Well, that's definitely a main thread that is one of the purposes for Volume 2. What I think about it is we have no record that Napoleon himself was a Mason. However, he was surrounded by several Masons. And Freemasonry back then was pretty open about their support of him. Okay, Masons loved him, even though he would make little jokes about them. He would still dine with them and socialize them. And of course, as I said, he was surrounded by Freemasons. But what I'm thinking, what I'm seeing, and what I'm exploring and researching right now is what I see in all this is more of an implication of a more secret society than Freemasonry, or at least one that's not so out there on the stage of history. And I'm digging into this, and this is the kind of organization that certainly Freemasons would have also been a member of. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at something a little more like the stories we hear about Jules Verne. So this would have been an organization, you know, pretty dedicated, similarly to the ideas of Freemasonry, but a little more dedicated to the mission of digging into and finding and retrieving the evidence and knowledge of the past, the lost past, and how it could shape the future. And as I said, these ideas are going to be really the main impetus for Volume 2. And I think definitely that Napoleon was being guided by the hand of whatever it is, whatever it was, whoever this was, whatever the organization was. And I think that's clear in his actions and in his associations. I also suspect the Knights Templar, whatever form they were in at the time, you know, of course, to be deeply involved in the life of Napoleon. I even suggest that maybe they were involved in the matchmaking that resulted in he and his older brother's birth. Hmm. So you have the Knights Templar in the mix as well. Yes, and I'm with you on the idea that oftentimes we have groups within groups. There's so much counter-espionage and infiltration. You really can't use these labels. I know the conspiracy culture tends to paint with a broad brush, so it's good mm -hmm. to break that down and be more accurate. And the first section of the three in your book, for me, is the real sweet spot. You start off with a bang and get straight into his expedition of Egypt where he made a pit stop in Malta first. But tell us about some of the preparation for this trip and the stop over in Malta, the clues that point to it being more about lost secrets of esoterica as opposed to a general goal of just expanding the French Empire and its territories. Well, here's what's interesting. And I think this is evidence that Napoleon was indeed using the military and political aspects of this as an expedient to really pursue his personal interests as regards uh, ancient history and the mysteries of our past. And that is that the idea 
of France invading, you know, with the idea of colonizing Egypt had been around for, you know, at least, I think, a couple hundred years in France. Now, there had been several plans over the course of the years and the decades leading up to his life, his own lifetime, that had been presented to the French government, the French king, what have you. In his day, there was this, there emerged this thing called the directory. And he simply piggybacked on a plan that existed that was virtually the same as his plan that, that he presented, except that original plan had the invasion of France staged from Crete. What Napoleon did was he entered the, the idea of using Malta as the launching platform to Egypt. Now, to us, you know, these days, the flag goes up and we go, oh, isn't that interesting? He, you know, wants to use Malta instead of Crete. Well, this would be for the obvious reasons. There were the, the Knights of Malta, of course, were there and very much like the Knights Templar and, and other orders of the day, these were guys who were historians. They were scholars of the arcane and the very same things that, you know, we're talking about Napoleon was interested in, that Masons are interested in and such. And of course, we know that there are some pretty curious megalithic structures and other arcane historical mysteries connected with Malta. And I argue that he was quite aware of this and that this was a primary reason that he chose Malta. Now, it so happens that Malta was also a very good strategic move. So it was perfect. Everything just fell into place for this guy. The stars were right. His interests, his personal interests were the primary motive for personal motive for going to Egypt. And it just so happened that the perfect place that he needed to go see that he wanted to stage from was also an excellent strategic choice. So it made it, the circumstances made it so easy for him to convince France, the French government, to back him on this, give him the resources and let him go to Egypt. Now, let's not be naive. At the time, there were people in the French government, Maurice Talleyrand among them, who liked nothing better than the idea of getting this this young upstart whose popularity was growing rapidly. They loved the idea of getting him as far away from France as possible. So they loved the idea. They supported it. They said, yes, let Nap- give him the ships he needs, give him the army, give him all the supplies. Let him go to Egypt. He'll probably die there, either get killed or languish. And then we don't have competition or, you know, anyone to block our political goals and aims. So it did serve some of their more cynical desires to see him go. So for all these reasons that it was good for France strategically and they wanted Napoleon out of the way, they backed him. Now, he just used that because he wasn't naive. He knew what was going on with that. He said, great, you know, I'm in command of this army and they're going to give me what I need. So what he did was, was something that hadn't really been done on this scale since the time of Alexander the Great. I think a previous French king had done this a little bit and the various knightly orders during the Crusades had kind of double-dutied in this regard. But what Napoleon did was 
He took over five what are called savants, which were philosophers, scientists, engineers, science technicians. He took over 500 of these guys on this expedition of conquest with him. Even the officers in his own army were just befuddled because they didn't understand it at first. And these scientists were all treated like on the same level as officers, like VIPs. And that was the other thing. Some of his officers and soldiers were like, huh, you know, this is interesting. So that right there speaks loudly to his intent of what he had planned to do in Egypt. And sure enough, once he got there and he deployed these guys, this was the birth of modern Egyptology. Okay. Napoleon's savants, as he called them, his scientists, many of which were philosopher scientists, okay, Freemason type guys and such. These guys essentially, you know, they were the first Europeans to really pour through Egypt and the ruins and document all of this. And modern Egyptology is a direct product of Napoleon's expedition. Hmm. <laughs> Provocative. And let's get into hypergeums or hypergeums a little bit and this sacred resonance of 111 hertz. This mm -hmm. comes into play with Malta a little bit because apparently there are two in France and then the oldest one might be in Malta. Maybe Napoleon had access there. You note he was an experienced meditator who thought that it helped him foresee what might happen. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting. And what makes <laughs> these hypergeums so important? Well, it's because, first of all, the the period in which they're made, I mean, these things are ancient and the fact that they're carved out of rock the way they are and the fact that not only are they carved out of the rock the way they are, just imagine one big, gigantic, huge, you know, mountain-sized stone and that's how these things are hollowed out into rooms and nooks and niches and doorways and passageways and all this. But the fact that they do it in such a way that the acoustics, the sonics of the thing are, are so accurate, you know, that you have to wonder what knowledge, what scientific and technical knowledge did these ancients have and who were they that build these hypogeums? What's interesting is they were also known to exist in Egypt. And certainly when you look at the men around Napoleon Bonaparte and his own personal interests, but his main mentor was Gaspar Mange who is known as, you know, the father of descriptive geometry and who himself was very much a philosopher scientist and would talk with and, and school Napoleon in these things. So Napoleon, before he even went to Malta, I argue that even though the, and I always mispronounce it, I apologize, the hypogeum was not, we are told, was not discovered until after Napoleon's time, I suggest that maybe the secret societies interested in these ancient structures already knew it was there because you had already for a long time, you had the Knights of Malta on the island of Malta and you had philosopher scientists and technicians among them. I argue that they likely found this hypogeum on Malta and just kept it secret for years. So the, the modern discovery that we're aware of that's on the books in our time I think that was really just either a rediscovery or it was time to 
go ahead and reveal this publicly that it's there for whatever reason. So I argue that, I suggest, I should say, that Napoleon, before he went to Malta, he was aware of the Hypogean's existence, and it was one of the things he was curious about. And therefore, my suggestion further implies that someone among the Knights of Malta showed it to him, gave him a little tour of it. Remember, he took several members, knights and their support staff with him to Egypt. So, you know, that further suggests the possibility, you know, who were these guys? We don't know. I argue that it was the, again, the philosopher scientists among the Knights of Malta, I think, were the ones he took with him to Egypt. So I would say that because of what we can legitimately suspect about his association with secret societies and other groups interested in the arcane mysteries of the past, that Napoleon probably knew quite a bit more about Malta than standard history offers us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm right there with you. If you have an ancient site, especially if it's some type of technology, I'm not surprised that groups of people, privileged people, know about it and keep it a secret. Like I said, especially if it is some type of technology, it has this sacred resonance of 111 hertz. And as you note, modern MRI machines have shown that 111 hertz can turn off the prefrontal cortex and deactivate the language centers. And this really starts to tie in nicely with Joseph Farrell's recent microcosm and medium, which we covered with him a few weeks back. But this idea of a frequency that plugs a person right into the collective unconscious, this cosmic quantum internet kind of thing might these structures unlock this type of gateway oh i think so i definitely think so and i think we do find this further into the story here when napoleon goes into the great pyramid right and spends the uh, time in the king's chamber i think that one of the reasons if not the the really main personal reason Napoleon wanted to stage from Malta was because he thought there would be some type of technological thematic uh, likeness between what was in the Hypogeum in Malta and what he would find in the Great Pyramid. And going back to you know what you pointed out before, that yes, he was an enthusiastic meditator, believer in meditation, and this was, I think, his primary motive as regards this particular subject we're talking about, of the acoustics of these ancient structures, I think he fully intended to do what I say he ultimately did, and that was tap in to that deeper level or higher level of conscious reality or consciousness that's out there and available. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's still so much over my head, but I am learning more and more that frequency is such a huge element of our reality. It seems like really dialing in and mapping out these frequencies can have all sorts of effects on the human body, on potentially levitating stones, on consciousness projection, all sorts of things. And it really is fascinating. I mean, even Tesla's famously quoted as saying, if you want to understand the universe think in terms of frequency and electricity, a couple other things, but frequency is definitely in there. And let's get into the Great Pyramid, so to speak, and that big did he or didn't he question, because it's definitely relevant to this tapping into the collective unconscious memory bank idea. If 
a person thinks that's the sort of thing the pyramids were for. But what do the available sources say about Napoleon and the Great Pyramid and that legendary rumor? Well, the story, as we know, has been out there um, presented usually as one of those apocryphal tales. In other words, it is said, or someone once rumored, that Napoleon Bonaparte spent a night in the Great Pyramid, specifically in the King's Chamber, and he came out pale and and just mortified and, and uh, you know, just at a loss for words. And when asked what happened, he said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And that's the tale that has been making the rounds for years. You know, I wondered, okay, is there anything to this? And what you find when you do the research is that, yes, there's indeed something to this. Now, the claims otherwise that it did not happen originated with a gentleman named Burien. Burien is his last name. He was a schoolmate of Napoleon's who in their adult years went on to work for Napoleon as one of his personal secretaries. Now, unfortunately, Burien had some ethics issues, was caught, you know, violating various rules and ethics, and was fired, I believe, twice by Napoleon for these issues and shortcomings. And basically, it kind of pissed him off. So Burien is the source of a lot of the negative untruths about Napoleon, you know, among his contemporaries. And Burian is widely recognized and has been for a while by modern historians as an undependable source. So Burian is the source of the story that, no, Napoleon didn't want to go inside the pyramid because he would have had to crawl through a tunnel and that was beneath him. And then this gets perpetuated by early historians among them, by the time you get in the 20th century, Christopher Harold, the author of Bonaparte in Egypt, the book I had mentioned earlier. And since Harold wrote his book, really Burian as a source has been mostly discredited on a lot of things about Napoleon. Because when you look at the other sources, okay, all the other biographers, the contemporary sources and the journals of these guys who were there with him and all the scholarship repeatedly talks about specific dates that he spent this day or the, this many days or weeks at Giza, where the pyramids are, and literally at the pyramid. And it talks about him getting a tour of the pyramid inside. And it talks about even the history. More than one source talks about how on a particular date, one of the journals of his contemporaries, on a particular date, as Napoleon was emerging from inside the Great Pyramid, he was informed of of a coming military conflict at Abukir Bay. So, you know, we have all these other sources that were there that talk about Napoleon spending hours, you know, inside these pyramids. And in the Great Pyramid in particular, you know, he was very fascinated with it. He even said it was the thing that, that fascinated him and scared him most of anything in the world that he ever saw. He was quoted as saying that. So what we have, are all these historical reports. We have the fact that he spent so much time in and around, you know, in Cairo, and he spent so much time in and around Giza. So with his fascinations, with these reports of 
you know, on other dates, he was seen to emerge from being inside the pyramid and crawling all over the pyramids and such, that the specific time that is associated with this apocryphal tale about the night he spent in the pyramid for seven hours specifically, the circumstances of all the other historical reports support that Napoleon was indeed there at the time of the apocryphal tale and did indeed, with his personal interests, and think about all the effort that he had made to get to Egypt, okay, and all the military fighting, all the stuff they had to do, all the obstacles, and he's not going to go inside the pyramids. It's a ridiculous assertion that none of the, you know, the vast majority of the historians don't agree with that assertion either. So the circumstances and the known facts and the legitimate reliable sources all support the idea that Napoleon did indeed among other times, spend that particular night from the story that we hear inside the pyramid, inside the king's chamber. And when you look closer at the influence of Gaspar Mange, it makes even more sense that he spent a night in the king's chamber. Mm. Yes, I think that's awesome to point out all those sources. And it definitely seems like we have more to go on that says he was there than wasn't. And mm -hmm. I guess... One of the big questions is what the pyramids were for. Without that, it's kind of hard to extrapolate anything else, really. The ideas range from them being weapons or energy sources or, like we said, out-of-body journey machines. All that's on the table. I've also heard stories that they found monoatomic gold in the king's chamber, and we've talked about alchemy before as well. Where do you land on the pyramids? Oh, I, I think... It's an all of it kind of answer almost. I think it was built with an understanding of high science. It was built as some type of machine. This structure is capable of serving as a kind of a, a, a huge psychotronic processor device, so to speak. It can be weaponized, and I think at one time it probably was. It could also have been used to power a city of an advanced civilization. It, it could have been all these things. I don't think, of course, Napoleon didn't answer that question of what it actually was, and I don't think that was his primary intention because that's such a big question, right? I mean, that's a big question in our day, and we're coming closer to try to answer that. But I think for him, he was keenly interested in its psychotronic qualities and possibilities. And I think that was his main focus. And I think Gaspar Mange, I think Gaspar Mange had suspected something based on whatever he knew about the pyramid. And I think Mange was the one that nailed it. And that's what allowed Napoleon to do whatever it was he did that resulted in his experience that he wouldn't talk about. Hmm. Yeah, Munch is an interesting guy. He does seem to kind of fit that wise wizard advisor archetype for Napoleon. And you mentioned the Munch point, some geographical proof that relates specifically to seeing layers or depth or underpinnings of a tetrahedron or a pyramidal shape. Mm -hmm. And that's a curious connection as well. Yes, it's, it's the, the Mange point is a point in a tetrahedral 
object or pyramidal object. A pyramid falls within the category of when you dig into the Monash point, it's that point at which multiple dimensions intersect. Now, Monash, of course, came to this mathematically, and I think he wanted to test his idea in the Great Pyramid because his knowledge of the pyramid at the time, and then certainly what he built upon between the time they first arrived at Giza and could actually get you know, their hands, so to speak, on the pyramid and look at it. And the time that Napoleon actually had his episode, this was almost a year. This was several months. So Monge had a bunch of time to look at the king's chamber, look at the dimensions of everything, do his calculations and apply this, this concept we call the Monge point to human consciousness, uh, you know, of a human being inside the pyramid. And of course, he used his protege, Napoleon Bonaparte, who was a serious practitioner of meditation, as the test subject. Now, I have to admit, I say it in the book, I'm going to admit right here, I'm not a math guy, okay? Those technical aspects of this book were the most difficult for me to write, and I paid the most close attention as I wrote those parts, because I, I knew that, okay, I got to get this right. Because this is, this is some deep stuff here. Now, someone like Joseph Farrell or someone who's more adept at math, you know, will, will more easily pick up the concepts. But essentially, that's what we're talking about was Gaspar Mange had some ideas about the pyramid and he, uh, he used his protege as his guinea pig, as it were, his willing guinea pig. <laughs> I love it, man. I think you're absolutely right. There's some kind of connection between geometry and mathematics on paper and how they relate to the real reality. It's why I think Masons are so tied up in esoteric knowledge is because there is a correlation there between mm -hmm. uh, the techniques they use to build and unlocking reality and multiple dimensions and consciousness and that whole Pandora's box of paranormal stuff that we talk about on shows like this. Yeah, and I didn't mean to gloss over by any means. You know, people are wondering, well, well, what what did happen to Napoleon in there? And what did this Monge point have to do with it? What I think we're talking about here, here's what I suggest, here's my speculation, is that Napoleon Bonaparte, the master at meditation already, he goes into the king's chamber. He lays down inside what is popularly called the sarcophagus, but there was never anything to indicate that this pyramid was a tomb, the king's chamber was ever a tomb. And he lays down inside this thing, and he begins to meditate at the Monge point. It is my argument that the sarcophagus, that is where you find the Monge point of the Great Pyramid. And I think Gaspar Monge knew this. He had calculated it. And that's why, you know, he had Napoleon do that. I think Napoleon laid in that sarcophagus. And during those seven hours, he was able to connect his consciousness through meditation to the physical, not, you know, Monge calculated it mathematically, but, you know, the idea was that there was a physical, actual Monge point as kind of a port, like a computer port on the back of your computer that you plug in the USB cord to, right? 
And Napoleon plugged his consciousness into that Mange point inside the so-called sarcophagus, the granite box, and took just a wild ride of his life through time and space. <laughs> yes, I would say that's a solid hypothesis. It's definitely provocative, and it's definitely in the wheelhouse of things that I would entertain as possibilities. And uh, as we close this thing out, is there anything else we should tell the people about? New books in the works, your website, or maybe TV adaptations of your books? Anything we should throw in? Well, the dramatic series development of the Empire of the Wheel books is getting really close to the next stage, and that would be the association with a network and such. It's getting, it's looking great. The The producer has shared with me the concept of the series and the historical figures and the fictional characters that are interwoven into it. So that's going really well. I'm working on some other publishing projects and some working on a little bit of fiction. I'm doing, of course, some nonfiction research at the same time on a book about Asian mythology and black magic and dark things. Wow. So a book about that might emerge here soon. And of course, my books are available at lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. And let me think, I of course have the Walter Bosley channel at YouTube. But yeah, that's, that's about all I can think of off the top of my head right now. <laughs> nice. Well, you're a busy man. Good luck with everything. You wrote a great book here, raised a lot of interesting questions. And uh, I look forward to more. Until then, take care out there and thanks again for your time. Thank you. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Thanks for tuning in again today, people. Walter Bosley, the esoteric Napoleon. <laughs> Just a nice off-the-radar episode that I've been looking forward to getting out to you guys for a few weeks now. Of course, a big part of my job is scouring the internet for good topics, and oftentimes that means going back to some of my favorite guests and seeing if they have anything new out. And I contacted Walter right away when I saw this book and said, Hey man, I've already ordered it. Give me a little time to read it, but you'll come back and talk to me about this, right? And luckily he was willing and able, because this is a subject matter that no one else is researching, and kudos to him for digging these things out of history and holding them up to the light. I definitely learn a lot every time I talk to Walter from that first conversation about Latitude 33 all the way right up to today. The stuff about hypergeums or hypergeums today was really awesome. Everything from Malta to Egypt, up and down, the whole thing intrigues me. And fortunately, it's a pretty natural place to start an interview about a book with part one of the book. And praise be, wouldn't you know, it was also my favorite section. Merovingian bloodlines are provocative, as is dodging your sentencing to exile and moving to the new Atlantis instead. But part one really, really did it for me. Though Walter does make a really great case that Napoleon lived out his days in America, not exiled on an island. And not only is it a pretty compelling argument on its own, it fits my general view of things that the upper echelons never really face any punishment. Sure, in a war we'll let a couple thousand soldiers die per side, but the top brass, or 
When it comes to assassinations, anyone who's acting on behalf of the cabal is generally captured alive or they escape and just don't face a lot of consequences in most cases. Even Hitler, of all people, lived out his days peacefully in Argentina. They tested the skull that was supposed to be his, and it wasn't even a man's skull. Plus, there's just so many witnesses that knew him or saw him there. There's photographs. That's probably the biggest example, but there's also Bin Laden. Does anyone really believe he was killed in the SEAL Team 6 raid and then buried at sea? Yeah, sure. Most of the alternative accounts would say that he died a few years before that, but he was living well until he wasn't. I mean, we don't even really have to go down the list of American presidents, but Bush, Cheney, both Clintons, never held accountable. Of course, whoever really killed JFK, also in that club, and even John Wilkes Booth is said to have gotten away scot-free by some alternative accounts that we've talked about before. I mean, we know this. It's just example after example. Sure, everyone's talking about the Epstein thing now, but let's see who actually goes down for anything and what secrets really get revealed. I'm skeptical, but I'm watching this show every day. But, I mean, it's on MSNBC. It's on CNN. Clearly, there's a want to talk about it. A lot of the alternative threads I'm seeing are generally saying that Epstein seemed to be a Mossad agent, and he not only held the blackmail file, but filled it on their behalf, and that this pressure is going to mount because they're trying to force America to attack Iran. And that kind of makes sense to me, but we're going to see. I have a show on the books about this, scheduled for next month, because I want to make sure we have the full story to talk about. I'd rather have a show that's deep and complete on this subject rather than just having the one that's first. So we will get into it. Don't you worry about that. But anyway, so the idea that Napoleon's punishment would just be a story we tell kids in school doesn't surprise me either, when very few people on that top rung ever really fall. But as I said, I really needed my memory refreshed when it came to Napoleon's bio in general and his conflicts. I know Walter considers himself a fan of the man, and it is possible that he really did make things better for the citizens of the places he conquered. Maybe he was the original breaker of chains. But a lot of conquerors tell themselves that they've made things better for the people who survived their invasion. And that's easy to say, right? I mean, if your friends or family died fighting him off, you probably wouldn't be swayed with a better tax rate. And as I said in the interview, you can read a lot of nasty stuff about him. And Walter isn't denying that. He's just saying that it's propaganda cooked up by his political enemies. And that's where it's going to get really fuzzy, because how do you sit in 2019 and make a conclusion that you can feel comfortable about when such a thing as British imperial propaganda is on the table. Because I'm definitely not putting anything past them either. So like Walter said, the truth is likely somewhere in the middle. And you definitely don't have to be a fan of the guy to be interested in his esoteric interests. That's the point here, and it was a fun show. I know we're pretty 
deeply behind schedule this month. This is only the third show to come out, and it's the 23rd. But our editor moved on to other things, so my lovely wife has been doing it again. And it's just not efficient for us, because if we have plans together, then no work is getting done, as opposed to having an editor who would be working during that time. So (laughs) I'm in the market again. It's nice to save money, but... I'm going to be scouting for editors for the next few weeks so we can free up her time again and get back to being more consistent. We had it there for a while, but it has been a very crazy and unusual month. Putting the finishing touches on the website, getting ready for that launch on the 5th of August. Comic-Con was also this past weekend, and for the first time in the 10 years that I've lived in San Diego, I had a badge with my name on it. So that was fun. It was a nice little staycation and a nice little distraction. Obviously, other things have factored into this month as well. But what can I say? We're hustling. I promise you that. Also in THC News, this month's joint session is coming up super soon, the 25th at 7 p.m. Pacific Time. That is this Thursday. So feel free to join me live or join THC Plus to see it on your own time if you're interested. And of course, the main attraction to being a Higher Side Chats Plus member is treating yourself to the full two-hour episodes of THC rather than just the first hour that you get for free. And still devoid of sponsorships, I would add. I've had a few sponsor requests this year saying that I'm leaving a lot of money on the table by not putting ads at least in the free show. And not only that, but then that would push people to plus because they'd want to avoid the ads. And I get it. Plenty of shows do that. I don't like it. The plus memberships are enough for me to get by on. And the corporations can't buy me. You will never see that happen as long as we stay listener-supported, and I don't see any reason why we wouldn't. Thanks to all you guys who take the plunge. It is the best feeling in the world, really, to know that this is my job. And so, like every episode, you can listen to twice as much show today with Walter, where we get into stuff like the 1,000-year conspiracy an expose on an old Prussian group that loves to infiltrate their enemies and then play them against each other, known as the Society of Lizards. Definitely something you don't hear about every day, and also very fascinating. And as I kind of mentioned in this wrap-up, we got into that question of if the real Napoleon was the one that was actually exiled. And I'll tell you, I am not so sure. (laughs) And then, towards the end of the show, we had to save some time for ufology because it's been such a staple of Walter's previous appearances. He has this military and counterintelligence background, and of course, it's so hot right now. But we got into how Walter's background actually affects his thoughts and analysis of the current ufology news, and I appreciate his analysis there as well. All interesting stuff. I try to make it worth your while. In fact, I tried to build THC to be a triple win. We focus solely on the guest and promoting their work in a professional fashion to a decent-sized audience, so they win. And we have the plus system, so I can afford to do this for a living, and instead of just asking you for donations and you getting nothing, 
or making you listen to ads, you can make the choice to say, hey, I like THC and the way this guy interviews people. I got to hear those full shows. And right there, I'm counting two more wins. So come over to the plus side. You'll love it. I'll love it. And we'll be best friends. But I guess I'm getting out of here. Big thanks again to the Boz, Walter Bosley. Never one to disappoint. And I'll see you next time. Your move, secret mission takers, bloodline makers, and island exile punishment fakers. Your fucking move. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man. To be the sad man. Behind blue eyes. And no one knows what it's like. Be hated to be faded to telling only lies, but my dreams aren't as empty as my conscience seems to be. me on THC No one knows what it's like to feel these feelings like I do and I blame you No one bites back his heart on their anger None of my pain and woe Can show through But my dreams Aren't as empty
to be the sad man behind